This is How to Read, brief conversations with brilliant minds. I'm Milan. And I'm Jess. This week, we're talking to Roger Chartier, a historian at the Collège de France in Paris and at the University of Pennsylvania. He studies the history of books, publishing, and reading. We hope you enjoy the conversation. The idea of using spaces to separate written words didn't develop until thousands of years after writing itself was invented. Before this, even literate people could only recognize words by reading aloud. Since that time, reading aloud has had many different functions. Roger Chartier, a historian of reading practices, leads us through some of the most interesting, from raucous Shakespearean theatres to railway passengers cozying up with strangers to listen to a novel. So when I was looking up your personal website, I saw that um, you teach a class called How to Read a Text. And I was wondering... What are the most important skills that you're teaching in terms of how to read? Now, that is the title of uh, our podcast. But it's more how the texts were read, in fact, the, uh, the object right. of the seminar. But for mm. anyone working with any text, yeah. he has to take into consideration how the texts were read. Okay, well then, can we kind of jump way back in time to kind of get an example of this? For example, there was, in the early Middle Ages, the impossibility for the reader to read without oralizing the text, not for giving an oral lecture to someone, so but speaking to, understand, to understand the text, yeah. because the text were in Latin, and Latin was no more the language of the uh, everyday life. The uh, Latin text uh, from antiquity have no separation between words. So to okay. understand it was necessary to read out loud. Mm-hmm. And so the one of the revolution of the reading practice when the possibility to read silently, mm. visually, and without uh, mumbling or <laughs> yeah. ruminating, which was a word in the Middle Ages, ruminatio. Yeah. And so what does this that is mean? A, what does that mean? But you, 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 you read uh, with uh, the lips and... Uh, you speak oh, okay. the text. That's what ruminating meant. Yes, wow. like an, uh, an animal who is uh, 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 the cow is ruminating when the cow is eating some uh, grass. Okay, uh, yeah. wow, I didn't know. <laughs> the ruminatio. <laughs> but so, so well, it was a revolution, but it was a progressive revolution because uh, first you have yeah. the, the people in uh, university and the school and the lay aristocracy and more and more in 16, 18th, 19th century, all the readers mm. were familiar with the possibility to read silently. Yeah. And so, it, I mean, is that partly because things start to be written in native languages rather than Latin? Because uh, you have the introduction of the uh, separation between the words, which allows the eye to... We're just uh, talking about spaces. Yeah, the spaces. Blank space between the words. And so the eyes could look at the fragment of the phrase to immediately perceive the difference between words, and you have not to read out loud. You can make an experiment in the 20th century. Some poet or some author uh, have come back to the idea to give the uh, text without uh, punctuation and mm. without blank space. If you do this, the only way to read it is to read out loud uh-huh. and to, uh, to detach the word by the voice yeah. and not by the eye. 
So this was important, but uh, progressively it was considered as a normal form of reading. Mm. And now you can read out loud, but either because you want to uh, listen yourself the beauty of poetry <laughs> or because you want but before to, it was to, just a practical to, need, to transmit, like yes, it's yeah. no more a necessity. And, and w when exactly did this happen? Oh, it was from spaces. the uh, 9th, 10th century in the monastery yeah, mm -hmm. until uh, yeah, the 19th century because the form of illiteracy was not by people who were absolutely unable to read, mm. but which were obliged to read out loud to understand the text they were reading. Yeah. And so yeah, what was a common practice even for the most learned people in the uh, early Middle Ages became uh, a signal, uh, an index of uh, illiteracy. That, that's really interesting because one of the questions that I was wondering about was how people of the past were able to engage with texts or literary works even if they couldn't read in the literal sense. Yeah. And it sounds like what you're saying is actually what we consider to be like literacy or able to yeah. read varies across time and space. Uh, yes, quite dramatically. There is a, an evolution of the, the part uh, of the population who be considered as literate. But uh, what you say could be also interesting in relation with the fact that even in situations in which you have only a relatively limited part of the population able to read, Mm. You have, nevertheless, the presence and participation of this uh, part of the population within the literary culture. First, yeah. because some uh, reading out loud could be done as a way for transmitting the text to those who cannot read it. Mm. And so the uh, practice of reading out loud was no more connected with this necessity for understanding, yeah. but for the involving the badly Sharing literate it. or illiterate. Yeah. A second element, some very literate cultural form, like the theater, mm. were widely open to include the popular classes. In the case in uh, Shakespeare's England, and mm -hmm. the case in the uh, Spanish of the Golden Age, yeah. uh, you have uh, one performance, 3,000 people. Mm. And so amongst these 3,000 people, you can have people who are not literate. Yeah. But they are involved in this uh, they can engage with the language. dramatic, historical language. Yeah, and this seems to be part of a much larger historical fact of reading and listening being so closely yeah. connected. Like, this this is new to me, but I'm, I'm really fascinated <laughs> by it. So people yeah. started off reading yeah. these words without spaces aloud in order to understand them. And then, well, I, I'm interested to know, do you, do you think people who come and listen to people speaking on stage, is that an act of reading? At, at, let's say in Shakespeare's time, yeah, was yeah. that an act of reading? But it's uh, both. That they, uh, it sometimes it divides the uh, relations that the playwright has with their own text. For some uh, of them, the text has to be performed, and so mm -hmm. the emphasis is upon the performance. Perhaps 60% of the play uh, between 1580 and 1640, for which we have a title, were never printed. Uh, so they were just performed? Yes, just performed. And mm -hmm. no one, neither the playwright nor uh, the uh, audience, feel the necessity to have the text printed. Yeah. So it's the idea that the theatrical text is uh, for the performance. And... On the other hand, you are the uh, playwright who thinks that the uh, theatrical text is a mm -hmm. poem. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. And so, in a sense, the performance uh, corrupt because they were during the afternoon, because they have 3,000 people uh, in the theater. And so the publication mm. is the uh, right manner to uh, give justice. C- to can you give an example but, uh, of a playwright the, that the, feels uh, that Ben way? Johnson. Ben Johnson. Ben Johnson, okay. for example, uh, or some other, like uh, Webster, uh, considered that the performance was innocent, deteriorating, corrupting the text. There is, uh, in a text by Webster, the real audience would be the readership, which is paradoxical okay. because they, they will not uh, have a relation of listening. But nevertheless, yeah. it would be the real uh, audience because they can see in yeah. the printed text the beauties of the poetry uh, without being disturbed. Yeah. by all the material condition <laughs> uh, of the performance. Yeah. Uh, and the consequence of this is to discuss if Shakespeare was uh, one side or the other side. Was Shakespeare a playwright who mm-hmm. had no interest in the printed publication of the play? Yeah. And there are some clues for this. For example, when the first folio, which was gathering uh, 36 plays by Shakespeare, was uh, printed in 1623, mm-hmm. uh, seven years after his death, Uh, Half of these plays have never been printed before. So if there was no uh, decision by two fellow uh, uh, actors of the Shakespeare Company to make a monument for their dead uh, colleague, uh, half of what we, uh, of the uh, repertoire of the Shakespeare play would have never been possible for us to listen to. Mm. So it's a a Shakespeare-like accompaniment, no interest for the publication, but there is some other who argue on the basis that some of the printed texts of the play are too long to be uh, ever performed. Because okay. at the time, it was two hours. At the beginning of Romeo and Juliet, it is hour to hour traffic. And if you have the second quarto of uh, Hamlet, it's uh, four hours. Yeah, or five I, hours. I, I remember once in, in London going to a production of Hamlet that they said, like, it's the full um, uncut text of exactly. Hamlet, and, and it, it was like four four yeah. hours or longer. Is it like in the movie by Kenneth Branagh, which seems absolutely <laughs> never end? Yes. Uh, and so why Shakespeare wrote so much, mm. where he knew perfectly that it would not be possible not to perform. It's not time to perform it And so proud in this end because he uh, detached the theatrical text from the uh, uh, circumstance yeah. of the performance and wrote uh, like a poet. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about this long history of reading practices. Are there certain reading practices from the past that we've kind of abandoned now that you've adopted in your own life or that you think (laughs) we should revive? An example is the uh, reading out loud. Uh We have started as a necessity. Yeah. In 16th, 17th, 18th century, it's often a form of constructing uh, a sociability. People were reading out loud in the salon, in the literary society, in the household, mm-hmm. but also during the travel. If you have a book, you can read for the other one in the same uh, carriage, so in the pe- same coach. Okay, so uh, people yeah. traveling would kind yeah. of read for the, the whole... Samuel Pipps, the uh, English author of the 17th century, who has yeah. written an enormous uh, diary, explained that often, in the circumstance of a coach, in order to pass time, it was not as fast as the uh, mm. plane. So someone started reading. So it was uh, the manner to uh, give uh, a social bound 
He mm. could be very ephemeral because people were together in the coach, but he could be also very permanent. For example, in old form of Protestantism, in which the reading out loud of the Bible was the core mm. of the uh, religious experience. Mm -hmm. And so you That read, would go on for yeah, people's whole lifetimes. We can say that 19th, uh, 20th century has um, marked a certain uh, decrease of this practice. As a form of uh, your sociability, it has largely disappeared. Yeah. Or it was for the relationship between children and adults. Right. So you ask the children to read out loud to see if they are able to read silently. Yeah. And the, the parents are, for their happiness or your despair, obliged to read to the <laughs> children uh, in order they can not be, no, be more listener but uh, sleeping. Yes. So, so, but it was, it was the two elements. Stories. And now yeah. mm. you have seen a kind of resurgence of reading out loud. First, okay. because you have these uh, audio books. Right. which was yeah, first yeah, destined to the blind. But now people uh, in the jam traffic in Los Angeles could uh, listen to uh, mm -hmm. uh, someone reading uh, a text. True. Or they could listen to a podcast like us. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Roger Chatier, thank you very thank much. You. Thank you very much. That was Roger Chartier, a historian at the Collège de France in Paris, and at the University of Pennsylvania. That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, at howtoreadnow. How to Read is produced by me, Milan Talunen, and by me, Jess Engebretson. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening.